0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning. We are wrapping up our series titled, We Are the Church, where we've been drilling down on what discipleship is. So here's where we've been so far. In in week one, Mitch taught us about counting the cost of discipleship. He taught us from Luke chapter 14, where he kind of just walked us through Jesus' warning to the people around him to to make sure that they count the cost of what it means to be a disciple of his. He encouraged us by reminding us of all the benefits Of following jesus from psalm 103 but he also told us that the cost is steep being a disciple of jesus means that it will affect every area of our lives all of who we are every part of our being every every facet of our life will need to be surrendered to god then in week two, Paul began to walk us through Jesus' vision of discipleship. And he did this from Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where he walked us through the Sermon on the Mount sort of overview fashion. And really began to key in on the teaching of, the, of, of Jesus and, and demonstrated that Jesus' description of those who are in his kingdom affects not only the, the surface issues like, hey, you know, you don't, don't murder or don't commit adultery, or, or, you know, don't steal. But rather, the underlying motivating issues of the heart, like lust and covetousness and unforgiveness. And so the, the the grand point of that was that Jesus was teaching that he expects the members of his kingdom not to simply conform to outward moral standards but to be obedient from the heart, from their innermost being. And then in week three, Mike Robinson taught. And he he laid out for us an understanding of the kingdom of God from Colossians chapter one. And Mike defined the gospel, not just in terms of its effect, salvation, but also in terms of its agenda. The gospel is, is going somewhere. The gospel is pulling the world and the church into something that God has planned. Namely, the redemption of all things. He taught us that Jesus expects the members of his kingdom to be obedient from the heart. And then in week four, Paul showed us that the source of life as disciples comes from jesus himself from john 15 where we learned about our relational connection to jesus who's the vine we're the branches we learned about our dependence on jesus for spiritual vitality and fruit Uh, jesus said it this way he said apart from me you can do nothing we learned about our fruit and how it's connected to obeying the commandments of jesus these commandments are, are, are there so that we might be built up and that we might grow in our love for one another and so represent Jesus well. And then last week, as, as Paul wrapped up, he said these three things. He said, remain in the love of Jesus, reflect, on the, love, or reflect the love of Jesus to one another, and reproduce the love of Jesus to others. Now we're going to look this morning at Ephesians 4, and my hope is, what I'm attempting to do is to clarify how all of these ideas from the previous weeks work together in the life of the church. And more importantly than that, we, we want to clarify for us as a church what it is that we do and why it is that we do it. In addition, we're going to do a little exercise at the end. Hopefully, if you, as you were coming in, you got a, a piece of paper that has a, a little spider graph on it, and you're going to save that to the very end. We'll, we'll, I'll kind of walk you through that uh, at the end. For those of you who are tuning in long, online, you can download a copy off of the website or keep a piece of scratch paper and, and draw out this chart for yourselves, and uh, I'll walk you through how, how to do that well. So let's begin by opening the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 4, and reading the text that we'll be considering this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, I'm keenly aware of my own weaknesses in communicating. So I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring clarity to the text this morning, but also, God, that there would be clarity in our lives. That as we hear your truth and as it it trickles down through our being, that we would be able to see what it is that you have called us to as individuals, but also collectively as your church. Plant in our hearts a vision for what it is that you're doing in us and through us. Anchor us to that truth and let it be what shapes our lives. We ask this so that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul here in this text is writing to the church at Ephesus from prison. Writing these letters is is a way for Paul to continue to care for the churches that have been planted throughout the Roman Empire. And as the gospel is spread through his missionary endeavors in the first wave of Christianity, Paul is now reaching out desirous to, to help equip those churches, help them understand, give them a framework by, by which it makes sense that they would continue to follow Jesus and live for Jesus' glory. Now, up to this point... Paul has really been laying out the beauty and benefit of Christ's redemptive work. Ephesians is an amazing book for that. Matter of fact, in the first chapter, let me just lay out for you some of the things that Paul talks about. He talks about how every spiritual blessing has been given to us in the heavenly places. He talks about how we've been elected by God for a purpose. He talks about righteousness and being adopted into the family of God. He talks about redemption, about forgiveness, about inheritance, about being sealed by the Holy Spirit and kept for the day that we face him. He goes on to de- describe in detail the, the wonderful blessings and the benefits of the gospel and how it affects the life of a believer. And in chapter 3, as, he, as he's making his way through, Paul offers up this prayer that I think is probably one of the most beautiful prayers in the New Testament. It marks the transition that Paul is about to make from sa- from uh, talking about saving grace to now talking about serving grace that is a grace that is given to the church for the goal of carrying out God's purpose in the world and so he 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 says this prayer from, from chapter 3 verse 14 for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named Amen. Isn't that an amazing prayer? It's like, man, I just want Christ to be in you. So, I want you to be so rooted in Him and grounded in Him, so full of His love that that it's blowing your mind. It's surpassing your ability to even understand how much you are loved by God. And that as you walk in that, that Christ is flowing through your life by the Holy Spirit so that God gets the glory. Now, Mitch Connell pointed out in our sermon prep team this last week that the last line of that prayer tells us why it is that we are to live out these things. We live this way so that God gets the glory through the church. We live this way so that God is glorified through the church. In other words, all that God calls the church to live in and to be is so that the glory of who God is will be revealed through their actions and through their presence in the world. Now, after this prayer, Paul begins to shift from what Christ has done to what he is now doing in and through the church in the present. He's demonstrating that the work and presence of Jesus is continuing through the way that the church lives. Through the way that it loves. And through the way that it labors on behalf of their new and eternal kingdom. He's beginning here in chapter 4 to describe to the church in Ephesus the reason for their action, the reason for their lifestyle. Another way to say this is Paul told us what a church comprised of disciples already has. But now he's telling the church, he's telling Ephesus, he's, he's telling Heritage Christian Fellowship this morning, this is what you have, but this is what you do with it. This is how you live because of it. Though there's more that could be said from this chapter, a lot that could be said, lots of fun rabbit trails to run. I want to I narrow our focus to think about God's purpose in the church. So let's, let's consider together what this thing called the church or the, the body of Christ is and why the early Christians described the church in this fashion, calling it the body of Christ. A couple of questions that I I want brewing in the back of your mind that I hope to answer through this teaching. As we walk through this passage, I want these questions just sort of like percolating in the background of your mind, okay? Why did the church begin to clump together in gatherings? I mean, why not just be individual Christians who believe in Jesus and like, why get together? What's the point of that? why have leaders within the church i mean doesn't second peter tell us that there is that we all the church collectively are a royal priesthood doesn't the doctrine of the the priesthood of all believers mean that we all are ministers on behalf of jesus so why do we need leadership what's that for what is the point of gathering what did, the, what did they believe that the church was actually accomplishing in getting together and living in this way? And then lastly, why does Paul use the analogy of the church as the body of Christ? Why does he use that word picture or that image for us? So we're going to divide our passage into three thought folders in an attempt to sort of answer that that, that litany of questions that's there. First of all, the church is, verses 1 through 6, gathered in unity, verses 7 through 12, gifted with ministry, and verses 13 to 16, growing in maturity. Gathered in unity, verses 1 through 6, gifted with ministry, verses 7 to 12 and 13 to 16, growing in maturity. So let's focus in on this first part here. The church is gathered in unity. Paul says here, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, pause. Let's pause right there. When you read the phrase, you, it is tempting to only hear that on an individual basis, to say, oh, he's talking to me. But who's the letter to? The church. It's to a group. It's not to individuals. Individuals comprise the group. But... It's to a group of people, and, and sometimes I think the, you know, we miss some of the details of language because words are funny, and the, and the way that they are, are turned or the way that they can be used or sometimes translated from the New Testament, you miss out on certain details. In, in this instance, the you there is plural. It's plural. If you were from the South, you could say, y'all, right? It, it's y'all. So therefore, Paul is saying that as a prisoner of the Lord, he is urging y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. This is a group project. It's not singular. In verse 2 he says, and walk with all humility and gentleness With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, all that God has called y'all to needs to be done by y'all, right? And you should do it with humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love and maintaining unity. This is something that is going to come through togetherness. And he further reinforces that by the next few verses. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice the redundancy there? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And y'all are united through that. Now, when we ask the question, why did the church gather in the first place? Why not be individuals? We're asking a very important question. These, These early Christians believed that being the church was not a means to attain some sort of social standing. In fact, often, being a part of the church cost them their lives. Nor was it a, a therapeutic help center, meant to enable you to feel better about yourself through psychological tricks and new things of of self-discovery that you learn so that you could walk away going, oh, gosh darn it, I'm I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and and people like me. No, that's not what it was about. In fact, being a Christian often meant for them taking up shame like a cross carrying it till they died. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. As Paul writes this, even at this moment, where's he sitting? In a prison. As a servant for the Lord Jesus. So I want you to see the redundancy here. He says, one body. You see, they believed that they had been born again into something. Something. They had somehow been invited into God's story of redemption in the world. And the unifying force for this was that they saw themselves as continuing the ministry of Jesus to the world. This is what is suggested in verse 4 when Paul uses the phrase, one body, one spirit, he says. They believe that God sent the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Jesus is now in the believers. In each of them. So that they could continue building His kingdom on the earth. They believe that they were being directed, animated, empowered by the same Spirit that was giving life and direction to Jesus while He ministered here on the earth. So there was one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to your call. They, they believe that Jesus' saving work would eventually bring all of creation to one apex. That everything that God has made has been heading towards one moment of reconciliation with God. That's what they believed. All of creation is heading to one apex in the redemption story of God. And this was the hope that belonged to their call. Now, I want you to just notice something, though. They, so, they have a very deep eschatological or end times conviction. Did they build bunkers? No. Did they store up lots of food so they could shoot their neighbor and make sure that they had it all for themselves? No, they did not. No, as a matter of fact, this belief that all of history was headed to this moment where you would stand before Jesus was the same belief that motivated them to stand for Jesus in this life. And Christianity spread not just from you know a small town in Judea but throughout the Roman Empire starts with 120 people in an upper room being filled with the Holy Spirit and next thing you know it it hits Jerusalem like a wildfire and continues to spread to spread throughout the the known world at that time and then finally as the ages continue to fall and form Christianity spreads to where here we are right now in a gymnasium or online on your couch, hopefully with pants on, (laughs) listening to the importance of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. From 120 people in an upper room to Medford, Oregon, today, the gospel has spread one person at a time. That's amazing. This has always been God's plan. So they said, one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. Now, the word Lord there is kurios in the Greek, and it was the same word that was used of Caesar. You had to call Caesar Lord, Kaiser kurios. But they said, no, no, we have one Lord. This is what put early Christians at odds with Rome, because they wouldn't say Caesar was Lord. They wouldn't say Kaiser Curios. All they could say is Jesus, Jesus Curios. Jesus is Lord. They, had, they believed that there was one king occupying the throne that rules the universe, and that this Lord, this Curios, was Jesus. One faith, he says here in this passage. They believed that there was only one person to put their trust in. There was only one person in the universe that was strong enough to fulfill all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament up until the present. There was only one person in the universe strong enough to bring all of human history to the apex of His judgment of a new heaven and of a new earth. And that one person was God Himself sending Jesus, His Son, One faith. One baptism. They believed that there was only one way to enter the family of God and to be received as family by His people. That one way was through faith in Jesus and baptism into the family of God. this, This baptism was an initiation rite. It made public their commitment to God's kingdom. And it also made public the commitment of the body of Christ to those who were now adopted into the family of God. The people being baptized. So he says one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. They believe that there was one God and Redeemer behind this great work of redemption. And this God is the origin of everything that exists, that he behaves not as a tyrant not like zeus or the other gods around but like a father who loves his creation they believe that he has authority over everything that he has made and that he was alive in them working through their lives both individually and collectively So to become a Christian in the early church was to become joined to the mass of people that were united under these realities. United under these understandings. They became like parts of Jesus' body. It's as though Christ is still present in the world. But instead of being limited to one person, one place, and one time, Christ is now in the church He's the acting head, giving life to and animating the church who continues to minister on behalf of the kingdom in the world. And by his spirit, this living organism called the church, which is comprised of many members, is continuing to do what Jesus did by living as disciples of Jesus in the world. Now, I want you to see the beauty of this. (laughs) The, The genius of this. You see, the beauty of this is that the success of God's mission in the world does not rise and fall on any one part. Because the church is massive. It's big, and it spreads across generations and time and continents and languages and people groups. You cannot kill it does not rise or fall on any one part. It depends on the one who gives it life. It does not depend on one generation. And yet every generation is taking up the mantle of Christ and learning what it means to follow in His footsteps. It does not depend on any one nation because the kingdom of Christ is composed of every nation. Jesus is alive and continuing to work redemption. He's doing this in the world through his body, the church, in every age, through every tribe, through every tongue, and through every group of people. Now, this is why sometimes I wonder if the lack of precision in the way that we talk about church sometimes muddies our concept of it or muddies our understanding of what this thing that God has created really is in the first place. As I mentioned last week at the end of the service during the benediction, I said that the church is not a place we go. It is a people that we are. You see, if I think that the church is a place that I go, then all that is required is attendance. And then it can be disconnected from anything else in my life. It has no bearing in any other segment of my life. But if being a part of the church is a people that we are, it consumes every part of my life down to the inward motivations of the heart. I think this portion of Scripture adds such great clarity to our thinking about the church. The church is not a place we go, it is a people we are. We are being used by God to give a 3D demonstration of who Christ is and what it looks like to be a part of his present and future kingdom by the way that we live. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, Over the summer, of course, I was on sabbatical. And uh, during that time, kind of at the beginning, I, I decided... Uh, to take a, a, a long trip that I've been wanting to do for a while. It was kind of a, one of those things that I'm like, I really want to take a section of the PCT and hike that section, do a, do a solo trip. My wife was super supportive. She did make me get one of those little GPS messengers so that I could text her, let her know I hadn't been eaten by any wild animals or anything like that. So I took off uh, near Castle Craig's and then was making my way to uh, Mount Etna Summit, which is about 80 miles or so. And I took off. The first three days were a little bit, you know, just a lot of hiking and hot and misery. It was like 106, 108 down here in the valley. I have no idea what it was on the mountain, but it was hot. And, uh, you know, I'm living on, I, I, because I'm having to carry all of my food, I don't have people like doing drop-offs for me. I, I have planned eight days of meals in my backpack. And so, you know, I'm, I'm up like 42 pounds for my pack at, at uh, the beginning, which was actually light. Uh, compared to what I really wanted to take, which was, you know, steaks and, you know, a lot of really amazing food. So I, I had one freeze-dried meal a day. And then I would have, like, two granola bars during the day. And I had some, like, a little bit of jerky, which I ran out, out of, like, on day one. <laughs> because jerky tastes amazing when it's hot. And uh, other than that, I'm, like, drink. I'm just pounding a lot of water and, and, and motoring, you know. And so about six days in, I'm, I'm somewhere around 60 miles into my trip. Um, unbeknownst to me, my wife, who's been tracking my whereabouts online, gives the location to Paul and to Aaron. And they got up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and, and drove down to Northern California and uh, found a Forest Service road that got them within a couple of miles of the lake that I was staying at, and so then they, and they hiked up the lake, and they, they come in, they come just bebopping in, and I hear Paul's voice. It's like, oh, hey, man, what's up, brother? And it, my brain just couldn't even register what was happening. For me, it was a 60-mile walk. I'm like, how did they get here, you know? My mind is just, like, blown. So they come bebopping in, you know, they all this energy and whatnot, and I'm like, <laughs> right <laughs> uh, and we we sat and we visited and then at one point Aaron goes oh hey by the way brought you something and he opens up what was to me like Mary Poppins bag <laughs> out comes bacon wrapped filet mignon some pre-seasoned potatoes like in a little baggie with some oil uh there were high chews. There were like uh, some additives for my water for hydration. And there was uh, Sour Patch Kids and uh, things that were like full of flavor. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're living on freeze-dried meals, all of a sudden something fruity, it was like mind-blowing how amazing it really was. And so they, they hung out for a couple of hours. They were really trying to honor, I think, my time of, of being alone with the Lord in, in uh, that place. So they hung out for a couple hours, and they packed up and, and left. And I got on the trail and began making my way to the next stop. And I was reflecting. I was talking to the Lord as I'm I'm on the trail, and I'm reflecting on this. And I just was feeling so, like, full of joy, so loved in that moment. And it dawned on me, something something really powerful hit me. It was that There are many times where we as believers have some supernatural experience of the love of God in a sanctuary, singing a worship song, and all of a sudden you're just like overwhelmed with the goodness of God in that moment. Tears are flowing, and you're just like, God, you're here, and you love me, and this is amazing. Or sometimes it's a a moment of devotion or a, a deep, passionate moment of prayer. Or perhaps a, one of those times where God speaks a specific word to you through a song or through you know, a, a word from a friend or through hearing a sermon and you realize God loves me, cares about what's happening in my world. That, those are supernatural events and they're awesome when they happen. But I would say this, by and large, the most normal way, the everyday way that God demonstrates his love to his people is through his people, through his people. Christ, in the church, loving his people. That's the way it works. Can you see how important it is for every part of the body to be vital, to be alive, to be taming with the life of Christ? Well, Paul goes on in this chapter to tell us how Jesus is making all of this happen. He says in verses 7 through 12 that we've been gifted with ministry, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he says. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Okay, now I want you to notice that this grace that is given to the church is not saving grace, but it is an empowering grace to serve others, it's a serving grace. And then when it says that he's the one who ascended on high, led a host of captives, gave gifts to men, it's saying that Jesus came down in the incarnation, he loved his people, built his kingdom, died on their behalf, purchased their victory, then rose as a triumphant king who had successfully conquered his enemies in battle. He after rising, he ascends back to the throne. And from the throne, he begins to share the spoils of the war with his people. And he gives gifts to the church. Now, John's gospel tells us that one of the gifts was the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, that's actually better that I go away and then I send the comforter to you because I can be here in one place in one time, but the comforter can be in you and with you all the time, wherever you go, reminding you of what I've taught you, empowering you for service. That, that's, that's what can happen here. So it's better that I go away, that I send these gifts. But it's not just that he, he gave the Holy Spirit, but also one of his gifts to the church was people. He gave people to the church. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He gave a diversity of gifts to a diversity of church leaders so that the church, verse 12, might be equipped for the work of ministry and build one another up. Well, what does this look like? Well, you have apostles which are sent out by God, sort of pioneering work, maybe comparing them to like a a modern-day missionary or church planter. Of course, there's the original apostles which hold a different class, the 12 that Jesus chose, but now through the Holy Spirit, God continues to send out from the church others as ambassadors for him. Then you have prophets, those who are used by God to speak to the church, to tell the heart of God. You have evangelists. Those are people who are gathering in others to the church. And then you have, uh, pastors or shepherds and teachers. And shepherds are the ones who are guarding the church and nurturing, feeding the church. Teachers are the ones who are are, are teaching and training the church so that they can live differently. And they're to be growing. They're to be growing. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in Christ in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So, they're to be growing, the church is to be growing and maturing. So, what does that look like? Well, he, he tells us unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This idea of mature manhood, again, is not an individual commitment, it is a together, it's a y'all commitment that we all would be helping one another grow in maturity. But what does maturity for this group of people that make up the body of Christ look like? Paul tells us the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal then is that our combined giftings result in people growing up into Christ-likeness throughout the body that we all together are representing Jesus in the gifts that we bring to bear within the church. Until we all attain, he says. No one gets to sit on the sidelines. Every body part matters, according to First Corinthians 12. Every gift, every personality matters to the Lord. He's using it all. They're, de- they're a specially designed vehicle by which God is revealing His Son and His kingdom to the world. So what's the point of gathering? So that we can all grow in the likeness of Christ. That's the point. Why does the church gather? Because through our ministry to one another, we're helping each other grow in the likeness of Christ. That's the point. This is why Jesus said, "Y'all are city on a hill." Y'all are the salt of the earth. Our growth as disciples makes us an image of Christ or, or a fragrance, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, we're an aroma of Christ to the world. We all are giving the world a taste of Jesus, an aroma of His kingdom. Now, this is why I think in Luke 14, something that Jesus said is so powerful. He says, if the salt has lost its flavor, what's it good for? You can't even throw it on the dung pile. It's only good to be thrown out. Listen, salt without flavor is just grit in your mouth. That's all it is. Now, Jed Morgan, he posted a video of Francis Chan before I left uh, on sabbatical that I thought was powerful, and it was an analogy that I I, I want to walk through this morning with you that I think is incredibly important for us to grab a hold of. So I stole this. It's Francis Chan's, uh, but it, it illustrates the point super well. Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. Now, here, let's just imagine that this right here is salt with no flavor. You go, oh, man, that's a lot of salt. What's it taste like? Nothing. Doesn't taste like anything, right? And then right here, fresh from Starbucks, okay. is salt with flavor, OK? Right there. Which pile you want? The one with flavor, right? It's the only one that actually makes a difference. It's the only one that matters. This, I could put as much of this on my food as I want. All it does is make the food gritty. This flavors the food. And see, here's the point. As we gather as the church, a lot of times all we care about is how big is the pile? How many people? What does it look like? Can we, can we get more butts in the seats and more dollars in the plate? And can we grow the biggest salt pile that we want? But if it doesn't have flavor, Jesus says, it actually ruins manure. Like manure has use as a fertilizer, right? But you, you put salt without flavor on the manure, what does it do? It ruins the manure. Ruins the fertilizer. Jesus says, it's not even good for dung. Salt with flavor has a purpose. And guys, as we consider that this morning, I want you to understand something about our church. The elders here at Heritage are not interested in having a big pile of flavorless salt. We we just don't need it. We know what Jesus said about that. Instead, rather, we're interested in being a body of believers that has the flavor of Christ, the person of Christ forming in us, and the mission of Christ working through us. Knowing this, then, that God has called the church to be a a, a place with the flavor, the aroma, the fragrance of Christ, how do we see that happening within our context, within heritage? Well, I I, I think it's helpful to just offer a quick delineation, and I am going to run over on time. You guys are going to have to bear with me because I can't finish this in the amount of time that I have left. I want you, I want you to imagine when somebody says you need to become a disciple of Jesus, what, what, what does that flash in your mind? How, How do I, how do I do that, right? And so, In our minds, it's like, okay, here's where I am. Here's disciple of Jesus. And then how do I get to here? And so we pick up on things in church culture. We go, okay, we're like, read your Bible and go to church and maybe get involved in a serving team and, and know your Bible and have devotions and practice spiritual disciplines. And, you know, and we just stack the ladder up to the top. And then eventually, when I do all of these things, then I can become a disciple. Did you know that the Bible doesn't actually use the word disciple in that way? or even discipleship. Rather, the book of Acts and other places talks about those who got saved as becoming disciples the moment that they got saved. It's as though at the moment of salvation, God gives to you everything that is, that is necessary as a gift by grace. It's there for you. But growing in discipleship is learning then, my life starts here, this is this, this middle point, to expand the, the presence of Jesus in such a way as I'm, as I'm growing in my relationship that He's invited into every area of my life. That He begins to, to permeate every section of my life. It's not a ladder that we're climbing. It's, it, it's a growing relationship in us to Jesus, where He has access to all of who we are, that's the idea. They are access points by which we allow Jesus to exercise his authority and rule in our lives. And so we're going to do this exercise. For those of you joining us online, I would encourage you to, to grab that sheet of paper that you printed, or, or hopefully, uh, you know, if you've got a piece of notebook paper, you can draw this out for yourselves. For those in the sanctuary this morning, go ahead and grab your piece of paper, your resource, and follow along uh, as we assess the areas where there is room for growth. So, we have slides? All right, excellent. There are different compartments or areas of our life that we are called in Scripture to surrender to God's authority. We're called to grow in the stewardship of our resources. So let's take a look at each of these categories. God glorifying stewardship, authentic relationships marked by love, gospel purity and mature doctrine, missional lifestyle. So missional lifestyle would be like living for the purpose of God's kingdom in a way that expands his kingdom. You're looking for opportunities to use your life To represent Jesus' kingdom well. Authentic worship marked by relationship. Godly character. This is an ethic of be before do. It's who I am, not just something I'm I'm feigning, I'm I'm practicing, I'm I'm putting on. It's it's what God has worked into me through maturity. Pursuing emotional health and willing submission to God. So you have these eight areas here. of our lives that are important in scripture and kind of outline for us. Now, as we go through each one, I want you to, I want you to now imagine this one each category and, and say, okay, uh, I want to rate myself on a scale of one to five. Uh, one being I, I'm least like Jesus, and five being I'm most like Jesus in this area. So on a scale of one to five. You're going to kind of jot a number into each of these categories. So first of all, let's take a look at God-glorifying stewardship. God-glorifying stewardship. Do I see God as the giver and ultimate authority over my time, talent, and treasure? Do I care for the gifts that God has given me? My time, my treasure, my talents, my physical body, my family, my possessions. Do, am I stewarding, am I caring for those things well? Well, And do I leverage those gifts in my life for the glory of God and for the good of the kingdom? Am I constantly thinking about how do I take this area of stewardship and use it to bring glory to God? So there's God-glorifying stewardship, the, the responsibilities that God has given us as his people. Authentic relationships marked by love, that's the next Category here, authentic relationships marked by love. Do I value being connected to others relationally? Do I appreciate the diversity of gifting, of personalities, and perspectives of the people that God has placed in my life? Do I like that there's diversity? Am I connected to a community of people that allows me to be vulnerable? And authentic, with my strengths and with my flaws, do I do I create that space within the body of Christ where I'm connected to somebody else? They know me, can speak into my life, they can encourage me when I'm down. They they get my heart, they understand me. Is my love for others is it real or fake? Is it an inward attitude or an outward action? Okay? And the way that I love people, you guys know, like we could get plastic in the church, right? Come, hey, brother, how are you? Oh, praise God. Like, there's that, right? And then there's the, the, the real, genuine, hey, how you doing? What's going on in your world? Tell me about what's happening in your heart, in your life. Real love? Feigned love? Love that takes action. You hear about a need? You're like, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. Or is there a deep concern where you're moved to action in response? Is it genuine love? Gospel purity and mature doctrine. This is an important one. They're all important, but this is is a good one here. Gospel purity and mature doctrine. Is the gospel about God's redemptive work in the world? Or is it mixed together with cultural values? False doctrine, political preference, desire for prosperity, etc. See, here's what happens: is that the gospel is all of a sudden in American culture married together with with U.S. politics, as though God is a Republican or God is a Democrat. I just want you to know He's neither. Okay, He's neither one of those. He stands outside of this world system uniquely, and He's going to offend both sides if you take the commands of Jesus seriously. So is the gospel tied together with a a political preference? Is it tied together with a value of like, I I, want to be rich, and so the gospel means that God wants me to be rich too, because that's what would make me happy, and God just really wants me to be happy. Really? Tell that to his son who died on a cross bearing our shame. Are my beliefs about God based on personal preference or opinion or what God has revealed about Himself? When, you, when somebody asks you the question, you know, what, what is God like? Do you go, well, I think God is like you, or do you go, God has revealed Himself in this way? What's your conviction in that? Do I know the Scriptures well enough to trust and defend its claims? Am I easily distracted by winds of doctrine or doctrinal fads that keep me from staying on God's mission of reaching the world? And that's the area of gospel purity and mature doctrine. Here's missional lifestyle. Do I see my life, my location, my resources, and my relationships as being purposed by God to reach the people in my world with the gospel? Do you see your life through that lens? Do my day-to-day disciplines behaviors, and intentions demonstrate my desire to lead others to Christ. Is there evidence that I want people to be saved? Can, can you find that evidence in your life? Does my prayer life reflect God's heart to see others know Christ? Is your prayer life consumed with your own needs? God bless this and do this. Or are you pleading, God save God, work. God, redeem. Open their heart. Take away the blinders from their eyes. Help them to see. Are you passionate in your prayers for the lost? Am I able to communicate the gospel to others with ease because it's something that I share regularly? Okay, so there's missional lifestyle. Here's authentic worship marked by love. Now, again, I hope that as we ask these questions, you're giving yourself a rating, one to five in each of these categories, At least like Jesus here, most like Jesus here, okay? Or you could say, you know, most like Jeremy, most like Jesus, right? My, my circle here is going to, well, I'll explain that later. Authentic, relationship, or authentic worship marked by relationship. Do I practice different spiritual disciplines as a means of connecting to God from the heart rather than religious duty? Is my involvement in the local church motivated by a desire to love God and to love his people the way that he does? Do I listen to teaching so that I can grow as a friend and disciple of Jesus or simply to grow in knowledge? Is my Christian service a loving act of worship or an obligation that I use to alleviate guilt? Authentic worship marked by relationship. Next, godly character, be-before-do ethics. Are Are my good works the outflow of who I am on the inside or a veneer to cover or make up for spiritual deficiencies? Is there evidence in my life that God is continuing to change me to be like Jesus? In other words, I'm I'm growing in integrity, in honesty, in humility, in love, in peace. Is there evidence that Christ is working in me to make me like himself? In moments of self-reflection, am I more concerned with how others perceive me? Or am I more concerned with accurately seeing myself as I am? Godly character. Pursuing emotional health. Now, this is one that I think sometimes is confusing to people. Like, why? what does the Bible have to say about emotional health? Well, it says a lot. It just doesn't use modern terminology. (laughs) You see, love out of brokenness ends up being broken love. If you I had a poor example of what a, what a father should be like you're going to struggle with being the kind of father God wants you to be if you you've had failed uh, relationships that have been difficult and and traumatic it will it will cause reflexes in you that hinder your ability to love freely in the way that Christ has called you to Those emotional wounds, if they're not addressed, if they're not dealt with in the heart of a a person, it makes it so difficult to fulfill the commands of Jesus. And so we should be pursuing emotional health. Are there topics or memories in my life that are too painful for me to talk about? That's a good indicator. Something, Something needs to be healed. Something needs to be addressed. Am I able to be fully present to the relationships in my life? Or am I marked by disengagement or distraction? Am I medicating, using social media, and Netflix to avoid real and genuine connection? Are there relationships in my life where I'm able to be fully known and still feel safe? Do I demonstrate self-control and an ability to regulate my emotions? Or do I have a lot of swings and highs and lows? Do I avoid God's gifts or lessons that come through pain, sorrow, and grief? Or do I embrace those as being a part of God's discipleship in my life. Last category, willing submission to God. Do I allow God to tell me no? Do I allow God to tell me that there are things I must do? Not only no, don't do these things, but you should be doing these things. Do you allow God to do that? Does he have that kind of authority? Is my life compartmentalized into areas that I allow God to speak into and areas that I don't want his input is it a joy to obey god or is it a fight to obey him is it a delight to follow his leading okay so you have these these eight categories okay now if i were perfect like jesus what would happen is my data points would be at the end of that spider graph so at the very end you can see the data points if i were perfect like jesus it, it would look like that now if you go to the next slide here you can see that it's all filled in the middle okay I, from, from where I started, I'm at max capacity in exemplifying Jesus in all of these areas. When people look into my life, they can see Jesus in each of these categories of my life. Okay? So let, let's take a look at maybe what a sample uh, graph might look like. So this person here can say, okay, when it comes to God-glorifying stewardship, I'm, I'm like a I'm like a four authentic relationships marked by love. Ooh, that one's a little tougher. I don't trust super easy, so I'm like a three. Gospel purity and mature doctrine. Okay, I'm feeling pretty confident in that. I'm like a, I'm like a four on that. I don't know everything, but I, I know quite a bit. Missional lifestyle. Ooh, Okay, I don't actually demonstrate a whole lot of care for the lost. And so I'm not really demonstrating that I care about lost people the way that Jesus does. I'm, I'm like a two. There, uh, authentic worship marked by relationship. Oh yeah, super passionate in the sanctuary. Hands up, I'm worshiping. I'm holy in. My devotional life reflects that. My de- my uh, my spiritual disciplines reflect that. I want to be connected to God. I'm, I'm I'm full out in that in that area. Godly character. Ugh. Okay, I kind of suck in that area. I'm I'm like a three here. Pursuing emotional health. So you can see how in each category, rating yourself one to five. Will move that dot down the line either closer to selfishness or closer to Christ likeness. And here's what it would look like when you fill in that chart. So here you can see the weaknesses and the deficiencies. If you go to the next slide, real quick, outlined in red there, you can see these are the areas where there is room for me to grow as a disciple of Jesus. This is where I have space to expand. Not only that, but I can see some real areas in this person's life where I go, man, there's some direct change that needs to take place. There's some very focused learning, stretching, growing in specific areas of this person's life where they need to stretch into Christ-like behavior and Christ-like living in the present world. So when you take this test, hopefully you're you're kind of getting an idea right now. What are are my soft spots? What are my weaknesses as you begin to fill that in? Here's what I want to be really careful of. One, you shouldn't do this alone. Let somebody else in and ask them, do you think this this is an accurate score? Why or why not? Where do we differ? Do it in community. Uh, Particularly, ask, for those of you who are married, I would say, let your spouse speak into this. Let, let them give you honest feedback and then ask for, like, how, how do you see me differently in this area? Okay, uh, the second thing there is I, I want you to be careful of, of, of a trap that you can fall into. One is the, the trap is the legalistic ethic, On the one side, you could, from this chart or something like this, create some sort of a checklist. Well, I'm weak here, and so now I need to do, 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 do. There's a hundred things that I need to do to be more of a disciple like Jesus. That's not the point. Rather, I want you to think of this more like a marriage relationship. It's not about do, 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 do. It's about become, right? So early on in my relationship, we had to work a lot on communication in my marriage, Because we didn't know how to talk to each other. We spoke different languages. I was from another planet. My wife was from where all the normal people are. And I had to learn how to speak normal, right? I had to grow and mature into that. But then as time went on, we were communicating well, but... We needed to build friendship and closeness, and so some of our energy needed to change in how we managed our relationship, and I needed to expand what was a weak area in my life to grow the relationship. That's how I want you to think about this chart. I want you to think about it as analyzing ways in which you can grow as a disciple of Jesus, how it is that you relate in all areas of life to who God is. As we close this time, it's my hope and my prayer that these tools placed in your hands become fuel for you to begin to think practically about how it is that you can grow as a disciple of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to think through this carefully. I ask now, Lord, that as we close our time, That by your grace and for your glory, you would utilize this this teaching in such a way that it begins to transform our lives. It It shows us and reveals to us the glory of what it means to be a part of the church. We ask, Lord, that you would pour out your blessing upon the body here at Heritage. That we, together in unity, gathered in unity, Gifted with opportunities for ministry to one another and to the world. That we would be growing in maturity as disciples of Jesus. That we'd be encouraging that with one another. So that we might become those who measure up to the full stature of Christ. Being rooted and grounded in love that we might build one another up. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's just going to close us out with one song before we, we leave here. And as you worship, I just invite you, would, would you take your heart to the Lord? Say, God, you, you've shown me where I am. Now show me how to grow. There's lots of opportunities here at Heritage for you to plug in, to be a part of the body. There are men's ministry Bible studies and women's ministry. Kathy does an amazing job. There are, There's huddle groups and there's going to be online signups for that. There's going to be lots of opportunities throughout this year. All of these things are access points by which you can grow as a disciple. And outside of that, in day-to-day life, connecting with one another, building each other up in love, this is the will of God for you as the body of Christ. Don't leave any of God's good gifts on the table. Take every advantage of them.